Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer Dr Sam Willis. And he is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. And we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected. Each week we discuss a surprising subject oozing with unexpected historical significance and this week it's the history of needlework. Which is all about Nazis, invasion, political clues and quilts and if you like what you hear please leave us a review on itunes subscribe to the podcast and tell all of your friends we're on twitter you can follow me at dr sam willis and you can follow me at james daybell and you can follow histories of the unexpected on at unexpected pod we are proud to be part of the excellent history hit network home of dan snow's history hit and other great shows and if you want to find out more what we've got planned in the forthcoming months show notes video clips photos of everything we discuss and much much more go to historyhit.com forward slash unexpected Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 35 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio googling through history, exploring the histories of things that you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like estuaries, chickens or chairs. And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how simply everything has a history and crucially how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of clouds is in fact all about meditation and, of course, the Reformation? Mm. Or that the history of chickens, yes, the history of chickens, is in fact all about female power in Africa. <laughs> I, I did, did not you know, know that? that. No, I didn't. The man it, sitting opposite me is the referee of the Reformation. It's Professor James Daybell. And the man sitting opposite me is the Major General of Millennia. It is the wonderful Dr Sam Willis. Together we will be piloting you on this uncharted and frankly highly dangerous flight into the past. Each week one of us takes the lead and this week it's James's turn. James, what have you got? Uh, I have been dying to do this for ages. Sam, I have the topic of needlework. Hmm. Can you sew I yourself? can sew. Yeah, I was taught to sew by my dad. I think he sat down and said, Sam, you need to be able to sew on a button. Yeah. Uh, and so I now can sew on a button. And uh, I had to actually mend one of my daughter's teddies last week and she asked me in disbelief if I could actually sew. And, and I said, no, me. but the teddy was going under a significant operation and would have the stitches <laughs> in for the rest of its life. Um, so I can sew. Um, I can also sew uh, sails. I've got a sailor's oh, palm. Oh, of course. Which, for those who don't know, a sailor's needle 
is um, is, a, is a huge, long, thick thing for forcing through very thick, dense canvas. And you have a palm, which is something you wrap around your hand, into which the base of the needle goes, so it doesn't go through your palm, mm. essentially, if you slip. So there are horrific sailors' injuries <laughs> with, with from sailors needles. from needles. So it's used for um, what well, it's called for serving and parceling yep. rope, it's protecting rope. It's also um, for mending sails, isn't it? For, for mending, sa- sail, mending sails well. and mending rope. Yeah. Um, so weirdly, yes, I, I can do a bit. I of... can, I can say. I was taught at school, hmm. at primary school. Um, I made a cushion. Did you? When I was about um, ten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you take a sort of lots of little hexagons of card. Yeah. And you put um, a, and you put fabric around them. Yeah. And then you put them back to back, and you can stitch them all up. Huh. It's very interesting. And then you roll the whole thing inside out, stuff it, and then stitch it all up. Are you proud of being able to sew? I'm very proud of being able to sew. I also made a hamburger, a, a sort of model, <laughs> model of a hamburger made out of felt. So it's very, you know, about this, about this big, bigger oh. than a bigger than a Big Mac. Hmm. You know, like three times the size of a Big Mac or a Whopper. So... But the needle, history of needlework is something that, in my research, well, there's I, a bit of gendering of needlework there's, there's going gen, on. Isn't there? There's gendering of needlework. I mean, it's something that I've that I've been interested in for for years, actually, um, connected to work that I've done on women and politics, and kind of thinking about you know how we look at needlework as, as something of political significance, which I'll talk about. Let's just start about what we're talking about. I mean, I'm the other thing that's just come to my mind is flags, oh, and also. Um, I should think embroidery and um, medieval knights uh, heraldry. Yeah, that's all. Or it must be. That's all, all needlework. I mean, needlework. You know, if we're thinking about it as the as sort of the sewing arts, needlework can be anything that you use a needle for. So whether it be embroidery, tapestry, whether it be knitting, you know, crocheting, whether it be samplers, you know, all of those kinds of things, quilting, all of those kinds of things can be seen as examples of needlework. I mean, the other way we can think about it is in terms of it as a domestic activity. Mm. So it's something that women within the household do. Girls are sort of trained up to be able to do this, that it's a useful skill that they have to be able to sort of mend and also mark things within the household but it's not just functional um, though is it i mean we're talking about no, meditation it's, no, it's, and clouds earlier but it's a bit it's, like um it's not just functional no and the kinds of things that you were talking about earlier on like jigsaws you sit down and do a jigsaw so you can sit down and do yeah. some embroidery yeah. you can pass yeah. the time can't yeah. you yeah. so it's practical it can pass the time so it's an activity for idle hands yeah which again is about you know the gender issue it's about giving girls things to do so that their minds aren't on other things mm-hmm. it's about constraining and controlling but in the other sense that it's not just practical, the kind of messages that come across yeah. in in that. And I'm sure both of us will have stuff to say about, mm. you know, meanings in, in needlework. But if you think about how do you read needlework, how do you read a piece of needlework that you have? I mean, you can think of it in terms of what it's made of, you know, the different materials, the tools that have been used. You can think about it in terms of the skillfulness of the needleworker, you know, whether it's him or her. Um, you can think of it in terms of designs and patterns. You can think of it in terms of manufacture and industry yeah. so you know um whether this is a sort of domestic industry or something that is that is altogether more organized you can think of it in terms of the object itself so the piece of needlework so where is it situated is it worn is it displayed you know what's the message and meaning associated with it we can also theorize needlework okay and there's a wonderful book that i will lend you um, by a scholar called Rosica Parker called The Subversive Stitch. And the idea is that basically what you <laughs> I take... I might be a bit busy for that, the, though, the, James. The <laughs> em- <laughs> embroidery and the making of the feminine. 
one of the key texts for thinking about the importance of needlework. You know, and when we come to it as a historian, how do we study needlework? You know, it's seen as one of the most quintessentially domestic arts, you know, that's connected with the household. But in fact, what she's doing in that is she's arguing, in fact, it's subversive, Mm. you know, in so many ways. And this is one of the foundational texts that a whole range of scholars have gone off and, and thought about. Take, for example, something like a a quilt, okay. like an American quilt. <clears throat> right. So these kinds of quilts that you would have as a wedding present, that you would have on your bed as a newly married couple. That is significant in so many ways, not only for the practice of women within the household, so family members, friends, grouping together in order to produce that. So it's a communal bonding activity. There's then the skillfulness that's displayed in it. Um, there, there are then the sort of intricate patterns. And it's kind of patchwork. It comes from lots of different material as well, doesn't lots it? Lots of so, different yeah. material. And that's also all about, you know, family tradition and heritage being sewn into it. But it's then a gift that is then passed down the family line. So it's a form of inheritance. Mm. It occupies a great sort of symbolic place for the newly married couple within their home that's connected to the next generation. So it's the bed where the next generation will be conceived and a treasured possession, mm. all the more treasured because it's been made by, you know, those of your closest and nearest. Have, and you, got, that, have you got a quilt? Uh, yes, but not one that has been intimately stitched by my mother and grandmother and sister. Mm. Um, but that would be lovely if they... I'm, I'm, they're, they're useless at, at needlework. Um, so it, it would be a very botched... Um, sorry, Mum. Sorry, 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 sis. <laughs> Made out of bin liners Made and neoprene. Yes, yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be great. <laughs> ah, interesting. One of the things that strikes me about needlework from my travels abroad, I've been to loads of carpet factories hmm. in various places, Iran, China, uh, Turkey, India, Pakistan... Egypt, among others. I seem to have weirdly just been doing nothing apart from going to carpet factories for a year. I've been to several places where I've been slightly um, unsettled and dumbstruck by the conditions Hmm. I've walked into, but nowhere more powerfully than a carpet factory I went to in Yazd in Iran. It's about 200 miles southeast of Esfahan. Hmm. It's in a very beautiful part of Iran. Um, And obviously Persian carpets are one of the Iranians' most important exports. Mm. And it's an industry that suffered particularly badly from all the sanctions which have been applied. But someone commented recently that the Persian carpet is like the Iranian flag, which is really, really interesting to me. In terms of it being a symbol of their culture and a symbol Mm. of their nationality, and they want to... The best way of, of of telling the world about Iranian culture, one of the most prevalent ways of doing it is is with the Persian carpet. Hmm. So anyway, I went into one of these sort of carpet factories. Here, here's a, here's a picture of a of a lady standing at a, at a loom. Hmm. That's a vertical loom, not needles as much. They're using their fingers. Sometimes they poke a sort of bone thing behind. Yeah. You've got these strands of silk going vertically, and then you hook onto them a little a little twist, a little knot. Uh, again, of silk, to build up the most extraordinarily intricate patterns. Mm. So there was a room with maybe 30 or 40 women in it, and they were all sitting on wooden benches. Mm. Clearly, one of the dullest, most repetitive tasks you can get, and they're all in some discomfort. There's a lot of shifting around, Mm. literally sitting on a a piece of wood, Mm. and they are there from between 8 and 14 hours a day. And it affects their fingers, their knees. I had a quick chat a couple Mm. of 
the women, the physical pain they were in after a lifetime of doing this. This is a handwoven carpet. I've also been to ones in China where they have machine looms. They're all deaf. It's to do with the effects of repetitive tasks on yeah. the body. Yeah. Um, and needlework's one of those ones where you're pretty much hunched over. It's yeah. very demanding on the eyes. And you the fingers as well. You need to have yeah. highlights. So they had incredible pain in their knees for some reason. Uh, it was knees, ankles, Because you you're kneeling down. Shoulders. Yeah. But it, it's everything. So yeah. it's, you're in an awkward position to do it, but then you're using your eyes, you're straining your eyes, and you're using your hands again and again and again and again. And they're, they're doing thousands mm. of knots. And what's wonderful about it, well, not wonderful, is that you don't, really get much sense of any kind of progress being made. It's mm. really weird. If you listen to it, all you hear is this kind of rustling. There's no talking. Mm. As they put their hands through the silk, tie the knot, get another bit of silk in, tie the mm. knot, another bit of silk in. But because each knot is so tiny and each carpet is so enormous, you can't see any progress. So it's one of those very, particularly Persian carpets, incredibly slow process, which is also immensely demanding on the body, much more yeah. than you'd ever How suspect. How long would it take to make one? It was years, like five years, years or something. And right. that's 30 people working 14 hours a so day. So these are incredibly expensive yeah, items. Yeah, I mean, a million and a half quid or five million quid or, or something like yeah, that. That's me. But that's because it takes up so many people's time. My immediate thought when it comes to needlework, having been to these, is that we need to stop and consider the conditions yeah, or, the or, or the people, you know, actually yeah. the way it's produced. Yeah. Yeah. So there we go. Brilliant. I'm going to talk about samplers. Mm-hmm. You, you've probably seen them in houses, sort of little embroidered samplers with little messages in, like, home sweet home. Yeah. And there are museums around the world. There are wonderful collections. Oh, the Royal Albert Memorial Museum in Exeter. There's a wonderful 17th century one. The V&A, the Victorian Albert Museum in London, have an amazing collection of these. And there's a wonderful... Um, I just, I just remember, I've, I've been to a house full of Jewish ones in India... Right. Where, where have I just been in India? Kerala. I mean, it's a practice across the world. Mm, and across different religions. Yep. For different purposes. The book that I was talking about is a V&A volume called Samplers by Claire Brown mm-hmm. and Jennifer Weirden, which is an incredible sort of treasure trove of these. But I just want to link up to what I was talking about earlier on, about the way in which needlework was such a, an important part of a young girl's education. Not only across Europe, but also in America in the 18th century. And the idea, again, is about occupying idle hands, which giving girls things to do. And education throughout this period, throughout history, is incredibly gendered. So while boys would be, you know, would be educated in the classics and reading and writing and languages, girls were, you know, might get a smattering of arithmetic, a smattering of writing, and then there's these sort of more refined accomplishments of which sewing was one of them. If you have a look at the way in which they were taught sampling, girls would generally produce two different kinds of samplers. So the first one is that they would produce a marking sampler. So effectively, they do this as a young girl. What they would do is they would write their name on it, their age, and usually the date that they were were doing this. And the idea behind this is not only to teach them that kind of skill, but it's also to teach them to be able to mark things. So when they came to be mistresses of households or wives or mothers in charge of households and in charge of linen within the households and clothes and fabrics, which were often some of the most valuable possessions that they've had, being able to mark them as your own, you know, rather like putting, you know, marks in kids' school clothes. You know, this was an important task. The next thing is this idea of decorative samplers. And the idea of decorative samplers, they're a little more advanced. And what you're doing is you're doing something that is more visual and more pictorial. So it's about showing 
your kind of deafness and skill. This is the kind of thing that would be put up in a household Mm. and would be a way of badging the accomplishments of your daughter. Now, I've got a couple of examples of these here. Uh, This one is a V&A example there. Have a look at that. This is one of the earliest British samplers that we have, dating from about 1598. Okay. And it's in cross stitch with back stitch. Uh, So fairly sort of complicated stitch. It's in linen embroidered with silk and metal thread. So we've got some animals here. We've got some patterns here. We've got some foliage. You've got some trees. We've got quite a lot of sort of abstract patterns, which is really interesting. And it's dated... Uh, as I said, 1598, and it's to mark the birth of a child, Alice Lee, by her her cousin, oh, who yeah, we know oh, yeah. was her cousin, Jane Bostock. Alice Lee, born the 23rd of November. Yeah. Hmm. So we have the idea of the of the sampler also being a way of, you know, marking family family heritage, family genealogy. And one of the things I'm interested in, the book that I'm writing on family and materials of memory, I'm trying to look for unusual... Um, types of documentation to support this. Embroidery is a massive yeah. example of this. I suppose Sam- the whole point samplers. is that the only reason, the only way this will have survived from 1590, whenever it is, 1598, is it? Yeah. Is for it to have been cherished. It would have cherished, Someone's passed been down, after, yeah. and then the V&A, a museum that is, that is, you know, associated with design and aesthetic, has decided to collect it because of its aesthetic value. There's another very, very brief example here, um, which is dated 1789, and it's from a, a young girl, Mary Ann Boddy, uh, her work in her ninth year of her age in 1789. And so there's a windmill, there's a house, there are some birds, there's a dog, there are all sorts of decorations. And she writes, she sort of stitches into it um, various sort of writing. Dear mother, I am young and cannot show much work as unto your goodness. Be pleased to smile on this my small endeavour. I'll strive to learn and be obedient every way I can. If all mankind would live in mutual love, this world would much resemble that above. Part of this, this kind of practice, is not only to teach needlework and skillfulness, um, but also to teach, you know, obedience, mm. you know, to sort of inculcate patterns discipline. of sociability and dis- patterns, yeah, discipline, of yeah. patterns of behaviour and, and sort of social hierarchy. I mean, that would have taken her ages. Yeah. An extraordinary achievement for a nine-year-old, actually, isn't it? Um, yeah. And I, you know, you should all go out to your local museums, as Sam was saying earlier on, and you should have a look for these samplers. I feel sorry for the poor nine-year-olds who yeah. have spent a year doing this. And many of you may have I your feel, own samplers quite, that, that commemorate events within your lives. How, I mean, you have two girls. How does that make you feel? Does that make you feel it's it's nice? I mean, she spent a seriously long time doing that. I'd be quite proud if they did that. Really. Yeah, well, it's not lost time. Also, they should have been doing something else. But I also wouldn't want them being inculcated in that kind of way. What I want yeah. for my girls is that I want them to be strong women, you know, who are opinionated and, you know, stand up for themselves. So and, this says a, a great deal to me about the person who's made the poor girl do that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's about parenting styles. Yeah. You know, yeah, and this one, the, the 1590 one's much more freestyle. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's much more um, kind of doodly, have a go at some wonderful patterns. Yeah, um, that to me looks like a much happier mind than that one. Yes, I mean, at a different age, that's a young girl doing this. Then down here, this is probably trying out lots of different design patterns yeah. that you can then that you can then use to later on. I mean, what what's noticeable is is a lot of samplers are done by young girls. Certainly in eighteenth century America, very few examples by adult women survive. But women use embroidery within the household, you know, to do other things. 
to decorate. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Furniture. So um, we talked about the people who made those. And I think that's really interesting, and certainly the conditions. So I'm just going to take that and carry on talking a little bit more about it by kind of deliberately talking about what I see as one of the most well-known pieces of needlework, even though it's probably not made with needles, which is the Bayer tapestry. It's not a tapestry, and it's not made in Bayer. Those are the two important things you need to know about the Bayer tapestry. It's an embroidery, and it was made in England, made in Canterbury. It's very famously and obviously tells the story of the Norman Conquest. Yep. Recent scholarship has explained there's all sorts of wonderful hidden Anglo-Saxon propaganda in it, as well as the more expected Norman stuff, which is a wonderful way of kind of rereading the traditional narrative. It has been studied again and again and again for the story that it tells of how William came to invade the Battle of Hastings, and there's some wonderful kind of gory details. We covered it a bit in my weapons series. Ah. That was for BBC Four, and it needed to be a very traditional, I think, kind of approach to things. We were exploring the story and and focusing on the, the sort of the beautiful detail of what um, had been produced. My kind of interest in the conditions of it, I think, does apply to the Bayer Tapestry particularly because it is 230 feet long. It's enormous. It's got Mm. 50 different scenes and there's no way that that was made without an army of people. Yeah, yeah. But we know next to nothing about that. It's really interesting. If you Google the back of the Bayer Tapestry and you want to try and find a picture of the back of it, you can't find one. As a historian, the moment you try and Google something and nothing turns up, you're definitely onto something. Yeah. There's going to be something interesting and exciting. Lots there. of loose threads. No one's, <laughs> no one's thought about. But what it'll tell us, there has been some, some interesting work, at least thinking about this. I'm a wonderful quote saying, this is from Alexander Lester-Macon from the University of Manchester, of how uh, the front of the, the Bayer Tapestry tells the story, but the back of the Bayer Tapestry actually tells its history, which is wonderful, mm. how it was made and who made it. But we need to know much more about that, I think. And um, it made me think about a Roman mosaic as well. Hmm. There, you know, the sort of beautiful things, yeah. that, but, but enormous. So not, yeah. not just the small ones, the, the huge, massive things that were found on the floors of, of Roman villas, certainly um, yeah. in, in the south yeah, coast yeah. of the UK, I are mean, wonderful. But who made them, under what conditions, and how was it structured? Who designed it? And then how did the kind of the, the team... So with the biotapacy, there must have been teams of people, probably women, and probably all highly skilled because we know from the doomsday book the sheriff of buckingham gives land to an embroiderer as long as she teach she as long as she teaches his daughter the skills so these aren't just with some belief it was it was embroidered by nuns and no one really kind of yeah, thought yeah. about that 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 seems to have been rubbished people think it was embroidered by 
professional embroiderers yeah. and working in God knows what conditions. Uh, it might have been good. They might have been very cared for because it was commissioned... As a form of propaganda, isn't it? It was commissioned yeah. as a form of propaganda yeah. by what we William's brother-in-law. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting about it is not only that side of it and not only the sort of militaristic side of, of history that we see and, and, it's, and it's one of the sort of staples in the sort of English canon of history, but it's also, I think, you know, what it tells us about everyday life. And I think this is something that came out of your BBC4 programme as well, the sort of comments that you see and pictures that you see in the margins. I mean, yeah, yeah. famously Halley's Comet, yeah, yeah. but also the scenes of everyday life. You know, so nuns yeah. trotting along, people yeah. being stabbed and, you know, cattle and... And there's still loads of stuff we don't know about yeah. the Bird Tapestry. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those brilliant things in history. You think, oh, historians must know everything. No, we do We do not. And it's not just about who made it, but it's also about the story and what are the kind of the marginalia, what are the little yeah. bits, yeah. the bits around the top. And the how hidden histories it. of yeah. it. Let me go back to my um, samplers yeah. and take it in another way. And back to Rosica Parker's Subversive Stitch. And what I want to do is show... What we've looked at so far is the way in which girls would have been trained in these domestic arts, the way in which samplers would have trained them up to be good housewives, to be able to sort of, you know, mend and make. And two brilliant books uh, that have been published recently. One is by um, Anne Rosalind Jones and Peter Stallybrass, Renaissance Clothing and the Materials of Memory, and their wonderful chapter in that on needlework. And the wonderful book by a friend of mine, Susan Fry, professor of English at University of Wyoming, uh, called Pens and Needles, Women's Textualities in Early Modern England, is one of the most brilliant and sumptuously illustrated books you can imagine. I have a copy of it somewhere here, uh, residing here. Have a look through that while I'm, while I'm just chatting. What comes out of both of these, I think, is moving away from this idea of sort of a restrictive approach to needlework. If you look at educational tracts from the period, you'll see that, that writers such as um, the Spanish humanist Vives argued that women should learn to sort of sew uh, and should learn needlework in order to sort of, um, you know, give them something to do. John Taylor thought that the needle will entreat women's peace, enlarge their store, to use their tongues less and their needle more. So it's all <laughs> about restricting them. But I think what's come out of Jones and Stallybress's work and Fry, and a there's a whole range of work um, being done in this area, has shown the politics of the political significance of needlework. And we yeah. can think about this in different ways. They also, people interested in women's writing, have shown that, in fact, needlework, the kinds of messages that come across in needlework, need to be thought of in terms of women's writing and in terms of literacy. You know, even the samplers that we looked at earlier on show a kind of basic literacy. And there are various ways in which we can start thinking about needlework, um, the messages that are communicated, their significance as gifts, the way in which tapestries might be used to decorate an aristocratic house, that show, rather than being, you know, restricted domestic activities, they in fact have a political significance that is extraordinary. Now, theoretically, this is linked to the work of feminists who theorise uh, the domestic as political, so the political significance. I just want to very briefly talk about a couple of very, very brief examples that we might that we might think of. One is Bess of Hardwick, famous sort of um, Elizabethan dynast, lives through to early 17th century. And one of the things that she did was buy up all sorts of tapestries to put across 
her sort of newly built um, Hardwick Hall, mm. um, which sort of emblazoned her initials all over it and made her sort of stamp on that. Mary, Queen of Scots, famously um, Bess of Hardwick and Mary, Queen of Scots, you know, were in the same household at one point while Mary, Queen of Scots, was, was prisoner. Um, they didn't get on, but they sewed together. Uh, and Susan Fry has done some fascinating work on this. But <laughs> they were doing samples about how much they hated the other but, person in the house. <laughs> more, probably, quite probably. But Mary, Queen of Scots, what's significant here is the kind of samplers she was doing have a kind of political symbolism and message in them. So they include ciphers of her political mm. ambition and identity and get her into a lot of trouble. The spider octagon, for example, which relates to Robert the Bruce and Mary can sort of outweigh Elizabeth. So, you know, famously, you know, the, the idea... Spider, that sounds, sounds like a Bond film. What, what is The that? spider octagon. So it's a, an octagon in the shape of a spider. So it related back to her, her sort of ancestor, Robert the Bruce. Right. So this idea that if you interpret that in a particular way, you can see her as wanting to, to sort of outlive and overthrow uh. the Queen. Or... Princess Elizabeth, so Elizabeth I before she was, was queen, her New Year's gift to her stepmother, Catherine Parr, so Henry VIII's final wife, uh, she embroidered a highly calligraphic manuscript in 1544 and 1545, which she gave to Catherine Parr, which included translation of, of some of Calvin's writings and also Catherine Parr's prayers in Italian. These were gifts. They're part of her sort of self-representation. It's also part of her identity as a sort of spiritual uh, sort of Protestant humanist. And this is where gifts of needleworks goes far above and beyond the kind of, you know, the sort of stitching that we have. So there we are. Needlework is politically significant for women across time. Interesting. It allows me to go back to the Bear Tapestry, actually. So the Bear Tapestry itself becomes an incredibly culturally important object yeah. uh, because it depicts the invasion of England. And so it then becomes very important for um, people like Napoleon, who is trying to invade England, and he actually puts it on display in the Louvre in the 1790s when he's planning the invasion of England. And it becomes the foundation for a whole propaganda effort explaining why it's acceptable, why it's possible, and how he's going to do it, how he's actually going to invade England. And it also becomes important for the Nazis, Hmm. which is why the Bear Tapestry Needlework is all to do with Indiana Jones, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Say more. Well, actually, um, the the Bear Tapestry is so important that there's a big infight in the Nazis between Himmler and Goebbels. Right. Okay, Himmler wants it because he's massively interested in ancient Germanic history, and it's an Aryan invasion. He wants to prove that the the Normans are related to the Vikings, the Vikings are related to this Aryan race. It's all to do with sort of proving where the Aryans came from, where they invaded, what they did. And Hmm. so it became a really important thing for the Nazis, particularly around the time of the Battle of Britain. Mm. Um, the fact that the Bear Tapestry survives is itself absolutely fascinating. It gets put in a, in a zinc-lined crate, which um, brings us back to our podcast on the history of boxes. There's a box view. I mean, it would have been huge. Yeah. I mean, the biotapestry is enormous. It's, they folded it up? I, I said, biotapestry is, I don't know, it's the same size as a Boeing 747 in length. <laughs> I have seen it, but it's, yeah. it's, it struck me that it's, it's actually, it's in a, quite a dark room and it's actually quite yeah. Narrow, isn't it? Yes, and yes, it's long, but, but, but that it's, means when it's rolled, yeah. it's going to be, I mean, like but a like huge barrel. It, yeah. You yeah. would, you roll it yeah. up or you'd, you'd fold it up. Yeah. So Himmler wants it, and he set up this thing called the Arnenerbe, which is the Ancestral Heritage Unit, and they're trying to prove that the Germans are, are descended from the Aryan race. Um, and that's where Indiana Jones comes in. Which Jones film is it? 
The Temple of Doom? Possibly the Temple of Doom. Oh, the, uh, no, the, uh, the, the... The Raiders of the Lost Ark? Raiders of the Lost Ark. There you ah. are. The, the, the evil Nazis in that. Yes. Um, so it's, it's based on this unit, which was set up by Himmler, the head of the SS. Anyway, so Himmler wants it, um, but Goebbels wants it as well because um, of the propaganda value, particularly at the time of the Battle of Britain. There's a big row uh, between the Nazis and there's a kind of a, a crazy race across northern France mm. to get the Bear Tapestry. It would make an amazing film. So they want it and Napoleon wants it, you know, to prove... I, th- I think, um, or certainly to use it as a, as a propaganda tool for the invasion of the UK. Which links me to uh, the Armada. Oh! Which is another brilliant example of tapestry. So your, your tapestry there was from the 1590s, that, yep. um, that yep. sampler, wasn't yep. it? Yep. So a few years after the Armada, Lord Howard, who was the Lord High Admiral yep. at the time of the yep. Armada, commissions a set of enormous tapestries... And they're 14 feet high and 28 feet long. They're, they are gigantic, these things, to commemorate um, uh, the Armada. And they're designed by Hendrik Cornelius Room, a Dutch yep. painter of sea yep. battles. There's a, a Belgian weaver called Francis Spearnings who actually does the weaving. And the story of those tapestries is absolutely fabulous. Oh, my gosh, look at those. I have seen them before. but uh, You haven't, because they, they were are... destroyed in 1834. I've seen pictures of them. You have. You've only seen pictures of them. So th- these are modern painting versions of the Armada tapestries. So here's the interesting thing, which I will allow you to go on to. I've got more to talk about, but I think you need to have a chat. These tapestries were built. They became the backdrop for English history for years. I've got lots of different examples here. I'll put them online. Um, there we go. The death, death of um, William Pitt in the House of Lords. They, they hang in the House of Lords, and they, they basically become a backdrop for English history. Um, they were destroyed in the fire in the Lords um, in 1834, and they've been recreated, but they've been recreated as paintings, mm. which is really interesting. The British government spent an absolute fortune on recreating these Armada tapestries, um, but not as tapestries. And um, it's one of the things that everyone seems to be extremely, extremely kind of proud of the fact that we've got the tapestries back. We can finally show what the ships did. It's basically snapshots of the ships as they move up the channel. Yeah. Um, no one seems to draw attention to the fact that they haven't been made as tapestries. <laughs> I mean, maybe we've, maybe in some ways we've lost the skill. Well, of- absolutely. Yes. So there, there is a skill that's been lost. But obviously in the 1590s, it's really important. Yeah. And, you know, Howard didn't commission paintings. Mm. He commissioned tapestries. Mm. Why? Don't know. More permanent. Ironically, they got more burnt. permanent. They they are take longer. Customary hangings within fairly sort of drafty buildings. So oh, that's that there's true. a sort of practical element to it. I them. like the idea that that painting is, is an artist. He does the painting. He paints the painting. Yeah. This is a combination of three forms of wealth. I think the first is the wealth of the artist, the talent of the artist. So you've got access to an extraordinary artist. Then you've got to have a weaver. Mm. Um, who needs to be an amazingly talented weaver who can make a carpet version of that painting. And then you have the thread. So it was made out of silk and gold thread. Mm. So it is, it's just like a higher status thing than a painting. It is the ultimate high status, isn't it? Mm. Because of this combination of, of richness, uh, wealth, and the, the, this cost of the thing. They've worked out that it costs £1,582, which is 87 Gosh. years' wages Gosh. for a worker in the 1590s. Goodness so, me. Um, yeah, the high status of the tapestry. And that's probably enough for me rambling on, but I think I'd love to see those Armada tapestries. One still survives. No one knows where it is. One of them survived the fire. it down. I want it. So I have one final thing, very touching um, thing. When I first came across this, I, I found it one of the most extraordinary, touching little sort of pieces of history that I've come across in my career as a historian. And it's to do with the Foundling Hospital. 
mm-hmm. the mid-18th century foundling hospital. Um, and a wonderful uh, exhibition and collection by the brilliant historian uh, John Stiles called Threads of Feeling. And what it's based upon is when women, often single women, women who were, you know, in in grave circumstances, you know, destitute, when they dropped off their children at the hospital, they would leave a little token. Um, these, these are kids without parents? Kids without parents or, you know, I mean, often we don't know the circumstances of it. OK. Yeah, there is a reason why a woman feels that um, she can't look after a, a child herself for various reasons and that the child would be brought up better in the foundling hospital where mm. they would receive, where they would be fed, they'd be looked after, they'd be given some kind of rudimentary education. And the idea is that they would leave these little sort of tokens and often what they are, they're little pieces of textile, you know, from either from their own clothes or from the children's clothes. The foundling hospital would then attach to the records of the child. And we've Whoa. got some examples here. As you can see here, you know, what we have is a sort of flowered um, example which is a, a flowered dress dating from about uh, 1750, matched with a piece of fly braid, linked to foundling number 2584, which is a girl who was admitted on the 27th of October, 1756. So you've got this sort of intimate wow. connection between the mother and the child that is just is just breathing emotion. Yeah. Now, what's interesting for historians is that if you think about the history of clothing, okay, the history of clothing is very easy to write from an elite perspective, in the sense that if you go to somewhere like the Victorian Albert Museum, what you will get is, you know, a whole collection of elite clothes that have been kept because they are fine, they're dandy, um, aesthetically important, they're important for fashion. What is altogether more difficult to do is to actually look at the clothing of ordinary people. But what you have here is about 5,000 samples of fabric. Wow. So you're able to sort of look at the kinds of clothes that people would have been wearing. And also, importantly, the kinds of access that very ordinary people would have had to certain kinds of fashion. Now, obviously, they're not wearing fancy silk, but what it shows you is that, you know, some of the sort of poorest women in society would have had access to fashion in a particular way. So the kind of the kinds of fashions that we see coming through as the luxury products of industrialization, they are able to have access to. Mm. I, I wonder if the if the people who dropped the girls off or whatever, the, the, the kids the off, off, knew this was a thing. Or they drop the child off and they say, oh, can you please fill in this form? And it's customary there's, to give there's, a biz... There's a it, sign outside that says, when children are are dropped off, please could you leave something that identifies them? So the idea being that basically, if as a mother you later came to a position when you'd be able to take the child back, this would be a way of connecting you. So you take your scarf with a hole in it? You take your scarf, yeah. So what so wow. what, what some mothers would have a th- this is interesting in several ways because the hospital isn't interested in the identity of the child so they're not interested in the name of the child the child will be renamed when they enter the hospital so effectively what you do in dropping a child off their identity is erased and they have a new identity which is fascinating in itself um but also what's what's fascinating is the the way in which mothers and this is again back to that subversive stitch the way in which mothers tried to 
subvert this system and try to um, put in almost sort of secret messages so that they'd be able to identify the child and have have some kind of connection. So, for example, there's an example of one mother who basically just cut her child's top in half. So the child had one that goes in the files and she keeps the other. Mm. Um, Other mothers inking in their names onto the fabric mm. but wonderful sort of very very touching testimony this was this was a major exhibition and actually a major impact case study for hertfordshire uh, that did very very well in the last ref research excellence framework brilliant brilliant case study the way in which it worked why it was so powerful was because it appealed to two different types of people it appealed to orphans people who were orphaned themselves or were adopted and going around this exhibition could see something in it for themselves, yeah. their own their own experience, and, and it was a way of, of greater understanding their own situation. The other group of people who were interested in it was people who were interested in embroidery, because you've got this incredible sort of array of fabrics. Yeah. Fascinating. It's, it's wonderful. And what I really like about this is like a pro forma, isn't it? So at the top, you've got admitted to the founding hospital, then there's a date, October the 27th, 1756, um, blah, 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 a child about dash old and they've yeah. left that one blank because they don't know and how here's another it's... example ribbons we should do the history of ribbons okay as well ribbons are often you know a sign of romantic love so a mother you know leaving ribbons and there's a brilliant book that goes along with this threads of feeling by john styles which you should all read brilliant we've done foundling hospitals iranian carpets the biotapestry nazis the arnanerb indiana jones uh, samplers, samplers mary queen of scots bess of hardwick yeah Embroideries, um, great households. Gosh, well, I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed subversive that one. stitches and Rosica Parker. Subversive stitches. Well, which, um, which Sam will be reading <laughs> because I will, I will force him to read it. Everyone, get in touch. Remember, you're the most important part of this podcast. Let us know about your thinking about the history of needlework and send in some pictures if you do any needlework. That would be cool. Excellent. Yeah, and that's it for now. Bye. Bye. If you enjoy this podcast and you like learning about the past, check out my latest venture. It's called History Masterclass, and it's a new type of historical event where you can actually learn in person from the best historians around today in unique and stunning historical locations. You can find out more at thehistorymasterclass.com and follow on Facebook. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Facebook and Twitter at the History MC.